It's November 2018, episode 18, Joanne Armitage on Feminist Algorave. My guest today is Dr. Joanne Armitage, a lecturer in digital media at the University of Leeds. Her research areas include physical computing, science and technology studies, and computer music. She performs regularly at Algoraves as half of the live coding duo Algobabes with Shelley Knotts. The two of them have been, according to their website, Blasting eardrums with incorrigible, industrial, synth-driven algo pop since 2016. Joanne is a member of OFL, the Orchestra for Females and Laptops. She recently won the British Science Association's Daphne Orham Award for Digital Innovation. And I think the work she's doing is important and innovative. And I've never met Joanne before today, and I'm glad to have her on the show and Get this opportunity to find out more. Thank you so much for coming on Hacking Culture, Joanne. Hi, Matthew. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk to you. <laughs> me too. I think in general, the outline I had in mind was talking a little bit about your background, then maybe talking a little bit about algorithms and live coding, mm-hmm. sort of generally, and then maybe talk about a little bit about some of the problems in technology and music technology, and then some of the things that you are doing to help with those problems. So that was the sort of general outline I had in my head, but we can kind of go wherever you'd like. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Great. So I I tried to piece together your history based on a few different articles and videos and websites. So am I correct to say that you have a PhD in computer music? Yeah, I guess it's pretty much computer music. It was based in the Interdisciplinary Centre for Scientific Research in Music, which is a now um, no longer active research centre. And it's actually where I met um, Alex McLean, who is quite a well-known live coder. So yeah, that, that was my PhD. And I guess it kind of falls mostly into the realms of computer music in that sense. And that's maybe not something that a lot of people have heard of. Is that more of a a music type degree or more of like a programming degree? Yeah, so it it was mostly, so it was practice-based PhD. So it was mostly looking at making things, um, but not making things to evaluate them, making things to experience them and then iterate them and redo them. So I think Although there was a level of like engineering and computation involved, it was definitely kind of, a, you know, a practice-based arts PhD or music PhD. Ah, interesting. It, now you're a lecturer in new media at the University of Leeds, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I've been actually been in roughly this position um, since the final year of my PhD, and I kind of ended up making the jump to media um, and teaching on a project module and supporting digital projects. And I ended up kind of staying there. I've been there for about four years now, and my role's grown a little bit. And I kind of contextualize my work much more uh, within digital media now than within music, although I still try and keep some of that academic work alive um, through my collaborations with Shelley. Sure. Mm. And Shelley being the other half of the algo babes. Yeah, Shelley Knotts. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the name. And it, it looks like you guys uh, get to play all around the world. Yeah, I think it's just the name that does it for us, really. Um, <laughs> I was calling myself an algo babe for a little while. And uh, when Shelly asked to play with me, you know, I shared it with her and put a Z on the end. <laughs> Did you say somewhere that you think you might be one of the first one of the first two women involved in live coding? 
Um, I'm not sure. I, I think in in Europe, Shelley Knotts and Nora Lawway were the first people I really encountered performing, and I came on a little bit later. But for a while, um, it was just the two of us performing regularly on the UK scene, maybe for about um, a year or so. So I see. But either way, you are definitely among among the first women involved in this movement and now it's really it's really grown quite a bit i guess we could that's sort of a transition then it seems like the uh algo rave and live coding movement has grown quite a bit around where you live could you maybe give us and i know this is a a a tricky question in a way but (laughs) a little sort of working definition of what you think of as uh, algorave or live coding or the connection between those two yeah so for me live coding is just kind of um the exploratory use of programming on stage as something that's performative um something that's uncertain um something that's um embodied um, and something that involves kind of uh, lots of listening and reacting and lots of complex relationships with the environment. So for me, yeah, live coding is is that. And I guess algo rave is kind of the public facing part of live coding where it um, becomes a bit more socialized and a bit more of a party. Sure. So the Algorave is kind of a place that people do their live coding in public or in with other people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So are would you say that all live coding concerts are algoraves or are there other sorts of live coding events that aren't algoraves? Yeah, definitely not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, um Live coding has origins in uh, sort of things that sprung out of electroacoustic music. So much more experimental environments, maybe in concert halls rather than clubs. And so I think Algorave is generally more of a party atmosphere. And live coding is just kind of a broader term um, that, you know, um, more kind of, yeah, like electroacoustic and other performances like that can fall under. I see. So a, yeah. another another group that you're part of, Ofal. And yeah, so it's awful. Awful. Yeah. Oh, like awful. I see. Yeah. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's another awful, awfully good name. <laughs> awful being the operative word, perhaps. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that that would be more like a group that performs live coding, but not necessarily in an algorithm situation. Yeah, so um, awful is yeah not so much in a algorithm situation. In fact, I don't know if awful could play an algorithm because um, we really struggle with beat synchronization. So I think uh, making it danceable would be a big uh, computational challenge. <laughs> um, so we normally play kind of drony sets, ideally on multi-channel speaker systems. So everybody could have a position in the um, sound space. And we use some kind of like high level live coding languages and instructions. It's kind of a little bit in between um, a notation and code, although they could be argued to be a very similar thing anyway. Um, to instruct each other and have voting systems to implement changes in the sound. So it's all a little bit more about kind of like um, texture, I guess, texture and loudness rather than rhythm. Ah, that's a nice way to put it. Mm. So is that, is Awful a group that performs uh, in person or did I read somewhere that that also sort of happens online? Yeah, so most of the band will join in remotely. Um, We've had a few shows where there's been five performers IRL, which has been quite special. Um, In Canada, in I think it was late 2016, we did a performance together and there was five people in the room and some of us hadn't met and that was really special. But often people are all across the world and quite 
uh, detached from each other. And so people send in streams, which we then bring together and play out the um, Super Collider. Ah, so you're all working in Super Collider? Um, no, people are working in different platforms. Um, so some people are doing kind of like live electronics with um, Max MSP and violins. Um, other people are doing processed vocals, um, but they're all sending um, audio streams, which we then capture in. So Shelly Knotts wrote the software that kind of brings it together in Super Collider and then plays it out through the sound system. I see. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of different ways then that people do live coding it seems like a lot of them end up sending signals to super collider which then helps with the transference to making it sound yeah so a lot of um synthesis is done in super collider um in fact most um most other languages um from tidal to foxdot to ixilang uh, to conductive, all come back to Super Collider at the um, sounding end. Gotcha. So that that probably seems a little bit uh, basic, but I think a lot of people aren't uh, familiar with live quoting. I've found just in six months of uh, experience with it that it usually confuses people, and it takes a while just to get people a sense of... <laughs> what 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 i'm talking about with live coding so i'm in a sense asking these questions in a very basic way because i've i've heard them a number of times as i'm sure you have as well totally and i i encounter this all the time particularly trying to explain what i do to family members and relatives it's always quite uh, fun or like um innocuous meetings with people who ask oh what do you do and like, oh here we go <laughs> so do you have a stock answer for that question or or is it is that take a while to explain um i normally just say i'm an electronic musician um and and try and leave it at that where possible um but but if i need to explain live coding yeah i'll um just kind of give maybe a similar definition to what i gave you um or say i code live which always feels like a bit of a cop-out, um, or make laptop music as well. If I'm just, if people are really interested, I'll go into depth and I'll always try and um, crack my laptop out and do a demo if I can. <laughs> yeah. I think you said in a talk in December 2017 that we still haven't quite figured out a good definition for live coding. Do you think that's still true a year later? Um, I think that... Uh, live coding is actually becoming, as it grows, it's becoming more complex and harder to pin down. Um, so I don't know if it's got easier, it may have got harder to define. I think people have lots of different definitions and understandings of it. Um, and I think that it's something that people talk through a lot. Um, and there's a there's a, a journal edition um, about Algo Rave that maybe hopefully, um, well, I've, I've contributed something to this. I think it will be coming out at the end of the year um, that hopefully maybe advances some of these questions. But I mean, they're questions that have been asked for a really long time. Um, and I think the instability of defining live coding is something that's really good as well. Um, and something that means that it's still alive in a way. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> You, you clearly have experience talking about this. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of experience in my head and in person <laughs> talking through these things. Um, and, I, and I try and talk with lots of different people about them as well to get some different perspectives. So live coders and thinkers and people in different practices and people with different experiences and knowledge and of different kind of backgrounds as much as possible. Sure. And we'll get into that in just a second. But I guess uh, another way that you had put it is that uh, live coding is kind of a Luddite activity. It's not necessarily something new. And I should also mention that this was in response to some comments from an article in The Guardian that 
featured a picture of you and a yeah. a, a very I think uh, useful video I thought that you're also featured in a number of places but just like a short five minute overview so the Guardian did this piece and then some people responded and and suggested that live coding is new but you would describe it as kind of a Luddite activity or something like that is is that is that still true? Yeah, that's the kind of notion that I've coined from Alex McLean. Um, but I think maybe some other people have claimed that too. And I think it's a really useful way to think about live coding, um, particularly when it's often uh, described as or, as or experienced as something that's really hyper-technical. And it's really easy to over-technical technicalize, I don't know if that's a word, but um, the <laughs> act of programming and the performance of code. Um, so I think it's really interesting to, uh, to pull those conversations back a little bit and say, actually, you know, this is, this is not as futuristic as, as it seems. And maybe there's a problem with how coding is placed in society and how coding is put into certain spaces and not into others that's the issue um so i think it's a really useful way of provoking that sort of thinking yeah it seems to be a a unique activity that doesn't fit quite well with just programming or just making music or some combination of those or, or even like just a it's it's way more than a theoretical it's a real sort of practical activity but this uh, notion of all of these different people coming together for an event like an algorithm as a result you end up with it seems like lots of phds <laughs> lots of yeah. uh, musicians and lots of people that just want to dance to music and then curious people and you know everything else in between yeah um i think a lot of the people i know who've really got into live coding and performed it have been able to obsess over it in some way so whether that's through a phd whether that's through an obsession with sound or whether that's through you know needing an obsession and needing something to like work on um you know you do find a lot of phds in algorithm um and i think you know uh, maybe that's something to do with time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, actually, it's probably more to do with uh, networks and how knowledge is transferred and shared. Um, I came to Algorithm because I knew two PhDs, a uh, few PhDs with, you know, if, if, a, if a scene starts in the academic community, it's going to have to very, work very hard to break out of it. Hmm. Do you think that live coding is sort of a fundamentally anti-commercial venture? Like it's more geared towards academia or any any venue that's not about making money? Yeah, I think um, many, I mean, it's using um, free open source software um, and that's, you know, obviously a stand against uh, commercialization. But I think this is something maybe we will see changing over time. I mean, personally, I recently did a workshop for a fitness studio in London uh, that's run by Adidas. So maybe some elements of commercialization will come in. Um, it was actually a really fun gig. I did a coding workshop in a yoga studio. Um, and it wasn't very commercial. It wasn't didn't have a very commercial feel to it, which is why um, I actually really enjoyed it. I really um, had a nice time. Um, but I think that. Uh, sorry, can we return to your question? My question had to do with uh, it's fair to describe live coding as anti-commercial. Yeah, yeah. I think it's anti-commercial in its instigation but at the same time it was yeah so it was dependent on academic institutions but as it breaks out of the academy and is breaking out of the academy um you know other institutions need to come in and supplement it 
financially so uh, it's sustainable. And um, I know Alex McLean in the UK has got uh, has got like I think he got Arts Council England funding, which is our kind of like national fund for the arts. I know the um, funding environment is very very different where you are, um, sadly. Um, but there is like a a national fund in the UK for Arts Council England, um, and people get funding to run events. Um, and institutional support to run events. It surprised me when I've seen so many events, live coding events that were funded by some arts organization and not just just people ran, sort of randomly getting together. It gives us this sense that there's something else going on there when you have um, like a, an arts council that's funding this kind of thing. Yeah, I think the arts council in England is very very interested in digital projects um, so and they really want to support digital projects um, and so Algorave to them might seem like a good thing to support um, because it kind of covers bases in terms of arts and and technologies really well um, but I think as well there has been some commercial sponsorship of algo raves which has gone um not so great from my experience we had a tech company uh come and ask people you know about their a levels which is your final high school exam in the uk um you know kind of 30 year olds <laughs> being asked about their a levels and like getting jobs in tech and it was just kind of a bit um awkward and cheesy I managed to avoid being interviewed myself. Um, so there is kind of like, there, there has been some corporate sponsorship and interest. And I think people, you know, sometimes play corporate gigs uh, to kind of get a bit, you know, because they're, they're, they're they can be well paid. They can be surprisingly terribly paid. And it's always quite um, enjoyable turning one of those shows down. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. You know, that's That's kind of fascinating because... The community that I'm most familiar with, the Drupal community, went through uh, or has been going through over, I would say, at least the last decade or so, more, a transition from people using Drupal for fun to people using it for their job. And now, when I, I've done a lot of research into the numbers and I've done posted some articles about the um, about the corporate influence and you know now it's more than half the community the people that are contributing are are sponsored by usually by yeah. their company or or somebody else that's funding them but with live coding one of the things that makes it so attractive is it seems like it's 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 an activity that's inherently less um, easy to turn into a career shall we say some maybe some people are doing it, but it just seems like in general that's in a sense one of the things that drew me to it was the sort of doing it for the fun of it in the moment kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. Um, a few years ago, I did a talk at a conference in Lan at Lancaster University called Wizwas, and uh, someone there uh, after my talk, someone posted to me. Oh well, it seems like you're going to have an interesting career in live coding, and I just—it just, it just um, blew my mind really because I—I huh. never thought I would, you know, it's just not something you consider when you start playing weird music with code that it will be a career. But what I found interesting is that you know a lot of my work wasn't really focused on live coding, but as soon as I started live coding, people so much more interested in that than um, my other work and so it really became the spotlight of what I do and it's really embedded into my career but I think it's because the, the, the nature of live coding and the kind of ethos of it is really embedded in how I think about technology and my relationship with technology and how I teach technology so in some ways, maybe I do have a career in live coding, but maybe not in such a direct way as, you know, someone who's performing live coding or has sponsorship to be a live coder. 
but I'm not sure if I'd really want that anyway, because I think live coding performances, performing live coding all the time would uh, be pretty hard going. <laughs> ah, might make it a little less fun too. Yeah, maybe. And sometimes, you know, when the schedule gets really heavy, it starts to feel a bit less fun and I get a bit grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose if anyone is, is on that spectrum more towards the, uh, I get to perform a lot as a live coder. It seems you're certainly in in that uh, small group of people that get to do regular live per- coding performances. And I, I don't think there's many people like that in the world, as far as I can tell. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, um, I've been really um, fortunate just getting a lot of very cool gigs recently. Um, and I feel very privileged to be asked to travel by a range of different institutions, whether it be festivals and and or universities, or sometimes just you know smaller arts organisations. We, I mean, I'm going to Japan on Thursday, which is um, so exciting, um, with uh, Alex McLean and, and Lucy Cheeseman, who's known as Heavy Lifting. Um, so yeah, I do get to play a lot of really nice shows. And, you know, I do get, moving back to the financial side, you know, I do get, manage to make some uh, revenue off it, but it's very uh, uh, unreliable and patchy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I don't think revenue is quite the right, right term. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Biggest sums of pocket money, making up for my precarious, slightly precarious uh, job. <laughs> there does seem to be some connection to like that and people that just like to pick up a guitar on the weekend and play at a bar or something like that. Although yeah. the whole culture in itself seems far more let's uh, introspective and analytical and academic and it's all the academics, yeah, making people think too much about why they're doing things. <laughs> but I think no, I think a lot of live coders are like that anyway, um, and you know, really, really reflective, interesting people bit of a sweeping generalization about the community I'm involved in there but um could you talk a little bit about feminist algorave and your attempts to get more women involved in live coding yeah I think one of my uh you know shared one of my biggest contributions to this the scene which I share with um, which I share a position with lots of other women as well, like um, Shelley Knotts, who we've mentioned, and Lucy Cheeseman, and uh, Miri Cat, is um, working towards uh, greater diversity. Um, and for me, yeah, that's been a really important uh, motivating factor for doing what I do. Um, and it's had some shifts uh, and it feels special to have met so many amazing women through through that process Um, whether they've ended up as internationally touring live coders or just come to one workshop and you know I've been able to see you know, and it hasn't really changed their practice or what they're doing, but, you know, you can see them doing awesome things. Um, there's a video of a workshop that Shelley and I did, which was the first women's workshop that we did. And she played it recently at a talk in Mexico. And I was a bit tired and emotional, not in the drunk sense, just in the, you know, uh, conference sense. And I was like almost crying at this snippet of this video because it, during the time that video was filmed, I didn't really know any many of the people in that room very well. But looking back at it, you know, two years later, I saw a room of people who are now my friends and it made me feel so emotional. Um, just seeing, yeah, how sometimes like just doing one small thing can end up like completely changing your networks and the area that you're working on exploring. That's a very good video and I will definitely put a link to it in the show notes. Is is that work, workshop that you did with those women, is that 
the only women only workshop that you've done or have you done other workshops like that that are just for women yeah i've done quite a few uh workshops for women and non-binary people um uh in the uk uh, i worked with siren which is a london-based dj collective to do a workshop and uh in japan we'll be doing some uh, women only workshops and yeah i think there's been a few others that maybe are slipping my mind but yeah we've done some like special women special they are very special women <laughs> non-binary only workshops um yeah but it's it sounds like you also do other workshops looks like just last weekend you were doing a a workshop that you called unlearning exercises and that you did it in a one day it was in a community house and the other day a town hall could you tell us a little bit about that workshop yeah so that workshop um was with a very close friend and collaborator of mine Greta Ecott who's an amazing percussionist based in Copenhagen and it was in, collabor in collaboration with this uh, London-based collective called Kawaba who make parties so we were kind of trying to like make playful workshops with uh, kind of slightly different exercises and learning exercises and explore code and percussion and like kind of connections and um, spaces between them and we wanted to really go to uh, rural not rural but they were in towns but maybe off the beaten track or in terms of experimental music uh, communities um I think both were in uh, so two were in community space centers and one was in the town hall and the turnout was a little bit uh lower on the numbers than we'd anticipated but we ended up having a really great experience with people of lots of different ages and lots of different experiences considering the lower turnout um, and that was funded by Sound and Music which is an organisation in the UK which uh, sponsors new music projects um, so we were doing things like making uh, uh, drum machines but out of acoustic instruments and then a grid and people would put objects on the grid and it would define a certain drum pattern and then translating that into code. So trying to bring something that's really tangible, like a grid and getting people to perform that and then saying, well, what if we notate that on the computer? Uh, sound, yeah, and how and what are the possibilities for doing, yeah, for translating between the two? Um, and it, I've only just got off, so I've, it was, we finished on, Sunday so I like dust hasn't really settled from it but that was a really fun process and I'm looking forward to like reflecting on it a little bit more in a couple of weeks um, and looking at my notes and uh, the recordings that we made and uh, maybe well we've got to do like an evaluation and probably like a blog post about it yeah. great that uh, description of it where you're doing coding and you're having somebody who's doing percussion. It seems like that's another part of the live coding experience that maybe surprised me a little bit and that it could be somewhat trickier to explain in that you have somebody who's working on a computer working with somebody who is maybe banging on a drum and that kind of collaboration seems like it's another regular feature of live coding events yeah it's, i feel it's not as regular as it should be i'd love it to be more regular um but it's definitely something that people do i've i've done it um with uh, greta greta and i have performed together um and it's always a challenge synchronizing and there's always issues with We've had issues before with the computer controlling the clock. But the last time we played together, I built like a tap tempo thing. So Greta could shift the tempo a bit, um, which was made it a bit more of like a two way relationship in terms of how we decided what, uh, how fast or slow to play. And Lucy Cheeseman has been playing with bands, which has been really fun to watch. Uh, so, 
And then um, I think Mary Cat has been uh, playing with a modular synth, synth um, synthesizer person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a modular synth. Not <laughs> by a human being. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I, I love seeing those kinds of collaborations. But yeah, the, sometimes, and obviously Alex McLean and Matthew Yee King play as Canute, which is a great collaboration. But yeah, it'd be great to see more of those sorts of things coming up. Um, I think it's really nice to have this, yeah, the different um, sounds and freedoms. Yeah, it certainly would take a little bit more planning than just sitting down at your computer and playing around with code. Yeah, and a, yeah, and a bit more practicing as well, um, which live coders are notoriously bad at. Practicing? Um, a lot of the live coders I know, myself included, I'm not very good at practicing. To be honest, my studio, I've just moved house, so my studio is in pieces at the moment. I, mean, I can't even go in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Your recent workshop you called the Unlearning Exercises, and yeah. that, that reminded me of all of the things that I thought about maybe computers and programming and other notions that live coding has made me rethink because I thought mu I thought of music in a certain way and now because of live coding I think of it differently. I thought of, you know, programming as a certain way as something that's that's checked and quality assured and you know to create a workable, usable thing, but now live coding has changed that. So is that part of what you're getting at with that title of unlearning exercises? Because you're sort of unlearning your pre preconceived ideas? Yeah, so I actually didn't come up with the title. It was something that, so the project sort of existed before um, I got involved in it. And it was mostly centered around the percussion stuff. But mm. it does come through that ethos of, you know, actually thinking about things a bit differently and presenting things in kind of new um, ways um, and how that's useful to like learn and explore and play with um, musical concepts. But that's translated really uh, well across to incorporating live coding into it because yeah, it's the kind of uh, the feeling of unlearning and unlearning and then relearning and then unlearning again. Um, and the nature of things like iteration, the iteration and those kind of metaphors that play really nicely with that idea. Hmm. That brings to mind another idea about live coding and something that you have said about live coding as a safe space to fail. And the, the notion that people could come into uh, Algorave or a workshop like the ones that you've led and then feel like here's a safe space to fail. It made me wonder how tricky is it to convince somebody that this is a safe space because it does really seem like a lot of the people at these live in the live coding community are open and welcoming and don't have those preconceptions about you have to create this beautiful piece of music or you're failing. How has that been teaching all of these workshops and convincing people that it is a safe space to fail? Yeah, it's really interesting um, dealing with uh, failure in live coding and particularly in workshops that have been the more feminist workshops I've done. It's bound up in all sorts of things about technological knowledge and ownership of expertise. Sometimes I get a bit carried away in workshops. I mean, I often get a bit carried away in workshops and end up like, you know, shouting at people, asking them to fail for me. <laughs> um, and I feel like both Shelley and I have really pushed this narrative. Um, oh, at the moment, we have a slide on our presentation that's just loads of errors on the screen and Shelley holding a glass of wine and the comments like, you know, failing and drinking through it. <laughs> <laughs> So we really try and push this idea of failing and failing as a creative process. And I mean, that's, that's not like a new idea. It's something that's, you know, constantly thought about in things like design. Um, but maybe in computing, um, failure and error is, uh, 
is often treated as something that's a bit more rigid. Um, and we like to talk about the different ways in which we can fail. So we can fail because uh, there's been an issue with the audio hardware or the projector. You know, that's one type of failure that's maybe kind of outside the space of, of the laptop. Mm -hmm. uh, we can fail because we've made an error in our code, um, a syntax error. Uh, we can fail because we've made a sound that just doesn't work very well. Um, and there are other ways we can fail, which I can't think of right now. But yes, there's lots of ways to fail in live coding. And I think that instability is what really drove me to challenge myself to develop and start playing it playing more and more but yeah I think failing is really hard and something I've become maybe a bit more conscious of recently is asking people to I, I get overexcited and ask people to fail but like asking people to fail um, is quite uh, challenging and that it's something that not everyone feels comfortable doing and that I've been doing this for quite a while so I kind of find it funny. Not, I mean, I often find failing very frustrating um, but at the time I can look back and laugh and blow it off but for some people there's a lot more at stake. Um, so yeah, I think balancing narratives around failure is something that's playful and fun but it's also something that's frustrating, it's disempowering, <laughs> it's uh, embarrassing. Um, but I think uh, being able to look back at that after event is, <laughs> is a way of managing it. But yeah, when people are new, um, I think it's just about uh, creating a fun environment where everybody's failing together and it's playful and it's not, um, no one's standing alone, doing things wrong. Um, we're all sharing that experience and doing it again and again. And I often fail in my own workshops in different ways. So, yeah. You are working with computers, so. <laughs> it worked yesterday. It's a you know a common theme. <laughs> the rest of the world has a lot of places that aren't particularly safe places to fail. So I can see how that would be challenging. Uh, I'm wondering if if you think of that, a workshop like that as a kind of sanctuary from the rest of the li people's lives where they're, they can't fail? Or are you, do you think of it more as teaching people about live coding as a tool to understand that failure in any aspect of life is okay or just a constructed idea, something that we've kind of made up, these narratives that we tell ourselves? Yeah, I think it's trying to place failure as something that we build up through our expectations of ourselves and our knowledge. And it's also failure as something that is innately human and everyday and mundane just like things like creativity you know actually it's super mundane and everyday and human um as is failure so yeah i think it's about repositioning failure mostly um so i guess i think i always find it most important to push these kind of narratives in my feminist workshops where, uh, you know, women have reported to me saying, you know, I've actually done a series of interviews with women about their experiences of learning live coding, currently practicing live coders who came to early workshops. And one thing they make very clear is that actually in these workshops, they felt they could fail um, outside of the male gaze. And, and that's, that's, that's their, their words and, and, and their experience. So I think it's about being able to fail specifically with technology uh, around people who make you feel comfortable. And that's what we try and do. But 
yeah, I think it's shifting narratives of technological failure um, and how many of the women who come to our workshops have experienced that in a very gendered way. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. I don't even know if I asked a question. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was something there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it makes me, it brings to mind something that my graduate advisor in graduate school used to say to me. She was a well-known uh, feminist music history scholar, and she she constantly reminded me over the nine years I was in graduate school that if we're not talking about gender, race, or class, then what's the point? So the your your descriptions of of live coding it seems like the, there's a lot a lot to that and i wonder if sometimes you just think of it as just a fun activity or is it kind of you have these very various narratives that in, in depending on the situation one maybe is getting more attention than the other yeah i think that's a really interesting question i um more of more thinking of it uh through the kind of more critical lens and that does sometimes suck a little bit of the joy out of it (laughs) (laughs) um but i think at the moment i'm doing lots of academic thinking and writing around live coding and for me writing doesn't come that easily so i do find it quite exhausting and thinking thinking comes easier but sometimes articulating it through text ironically uh, it's a bit more challenging um so i think i've become a bit bound up in negotiating live coding as like a gendered embodied practice um and so i'm kind of enjoying performing a little bit less at the moment but I think as well, I've just changed, so I'm, I'm working more, and I'm finding it really exhausting. I mean, I'm right in the mid, I'm halfway through semester at the moment, and I'm ready for bed by about 8 p.m. So playing like weekend shows is just, it's been really tough, um, you know, and I, I haven't had many weekends off. So yeah, some of the joy, some of the joy isn't quite present at the moment, but I'm hoping the trip to Japan next week will revitalize me a little bit in that regard. Um, And I think on a more personal level, like about what I'm playing is that I need to really uh, start challenging myself to do some interest, more interesting stuff. Uh, Because I was talking to some of the people on the tour at the weekend and I feel like I'm still I'm currently kind of uh, riding off work I put in 12 months ago and I need to maybe start devising some new ways of working, which I've been trying to do, but I haven't really been focusing on enough to feel confident to uh, do that as performance. Certainly the notion of teaching and correcting papers and adding on... (laughs) live coding concert sounds like a lot to be uh juggling especially when you're doing as many of these events and workshops and concerts as you're doing so i I believe you (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's um i have part of my contract isn't permanent so i do feel need the need to try and keep up as many of my external commitments as i can manage because I don't want to lose any work, you know, for the next, you know, in eight months, I don't really know what where my work contract will be. So I don't really want to turn loads of stuff away. So I am passing things on to other people, um, but some stuff is hard to resist. <laughs> and there's some quite cool things coming up that I don't know if I can announce. Actually, I can announce that we're doing a, uh, panel at South by Southwest. Um, oh, I saw that. Is, yeah, yeah. That's official. Ah, um, I saw the voting for it, but I wasn't sure if it was accepted or not. Yeah, it's been accepted. Um, and hopefully there'll be some other stuff around that. And I'm not sure if I can talk about that yet. But mm. yeah, we're really excited about that. 
Um, Is that part of the music South by Southwest or the the more technology part of it? Yeah, this is the, I've, I don't know what's ha- I think I was a, I was working at a music um, festival at the time. So I think I applied for the technology track. So we're in the technology mm. track, um, which I was quite surprised I'd done. I thought I would have put it in music, but hmm. um, maybe well, they will just get us in. The uh, music track, I think, is a lot more about performance. Uh, but maybe that's what you're doing as well, but the... That, that conference, I've, I've been there quite a few times, and it's it's one of the largest technology conferences. No, it's got to be the largest technology conference I've been mm. to. It's so big. But uh, it's a great place to give a talk because there's usually going to be thousands of people listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we have a really, I mean, I know I'm on the panel, so I'm biased, uh, but and I, I don't include myself in this, but we've got a really, really great panel. Um it's Shelley Knotts, who you know I've mentioned a few times. Mm-hmm. Alexandra Cardenas, who's you know a big, um, has done so much work in the, the South American and Central American live coding scene, um, and is currently based in between Berlin and Mexico City. And so she has like loads of amazing experience to bring to it. And she comes from, uh, yeah, very much. She's got very like clear kind of musical um, goal that really drives her work. She's, she, her album's released on Saturday. It's like a minor plug, Alexandra Cardenas and Antonio Roberts, who's UK based as well. And he's a visual live coder. Um, and so I think it should be a really nice discussion. That sounds great. Getting back to some of these questions around gender and diversity, I've been having some discussions with a couple of people in my local community, and we're going to have a title cycles group, a live coding group, essentially. And when I see some of the work you're doing, it, it makes me want to do the best that I can to help make sure our group is as inclusive and diverse and welcoming as possible. And, you know, I, can read lots of uh, buzzwords online about being gender allies or creating a place where people assume positive intent or that kind of thing. Do you have any suggestions for us to help make our, our, uh, like user group as welcoming as possible? Yeah, I think, um, you know, really, uh, the best way to deal with diversity is find people from uh, backgrounds that are different to yours to um, give them positions of power in your group, whether it be um, about gender, race or class. Um, and that's something that's hard to do when there's kind of no precedent. But the way to deal with that is opening up what you're doing a little bit uh, to try and incorporate some different experiences better. So one thing that uh, happened in the UK is that Alex McLean really pushed to uh, include things like crafting in Mm. live coding and thinking of live coding in a craft Um, and then uh, worked with loads of knitters and weavers. So whether it's through trying to facilitate collaboration or I think just trying to rethink what you're doing and how you're structuring things, I think it's really important to think about and get other people from different backgrounds to read the copy that you used for events, um, to think about how it's pitched and framed. Um, It's really important where events get shared and who with. Sometimes, you know, a lot of the people I've spoken to, a lot of the women in particular I've spoken to who started playing gigs, you know, they came to one workshop and someone was like, you know, hey, why don't you play a show? And that was enough to like make them become a live coder, you know? So sometimes just slight provocations like, hi, why don't you just like do a talk on your work at this and think about, and we can talk about how 
it can become embedded in what we're doing. Those sort of like small like uh, nudges. You don't often, you know, if someone's game, you don't have to give them a big push, just a little nudge and uh, people jump right in. Obviously other people you have to like work on a little bit, but once you've kind of got like a diverse team running events, that all becomes a bit easier, I feel. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that you essentially just have to model that behavior <laughs> that you're trying to promote. Yeah, yeah. Having been to so many programming events and local user groups and programming groups where it's, you know, it's pizza and beer at some cool, hip, you know, web design studio or something, and thinking about how just some of the, like the location or just like having alcohol at events can change the whole vibe of it and who you're, who who's feels welcome. Yeah. So I, I've been thinking some about that in terms of structural kinds of things. Yeah, that's really important too, actually, because alcohol can place something off limits to lots of different people. Um, and I, I know uh, I've heard from quite a lot of people who, you know, even if they do drink, they won't go to coding events at bars because of like previous uh, negative experiences. Um, and I also know from experience that people often don't feel comfortable in institutions like universities or always, and that puts up barriers for some people, which is something that um, I took for granted for a little while as somebody who's always been at university. Um, you know, not everyone feels comfortable in the space in which I work. Um, so yeah, I think trying to find and negotiate neutral spaces and try different things out um, is really important. And I think trying to take coding to non-conventional and different spaces is one of the most important things that you could be doing as someone interested in code and who codes. I think who codes is a really important question in itself. Yeah. You know, one of the other people I've had on the podcast from a group called Asian Penguins, these kids in a school district where they make computers and they install Linux on them and then they deliver them to kids in the community. They come from families that don't have enough money for a computer. So they've delivered hundreds of computers. Mm. And I thought it'd be interesting to somehow collaborate with those kids or teach them Lied coding or do some sort of workshop for kids, but then how nice it would be to be able to invite them to a a, a meetup and where those kids might feel uh, welcome. But sometimes simply when like the time of day or the the lack of transportation with some folks, really there's there's just so many reasons that uh, you can leave people out that it's it can be kind of intimidating if you want to try and think of all of that. One of the things that I think is so great about your work is that you, you just keep doing these events and these workshops and they're, they're, they're different in different places and that kind of thing. So it seems like, seems like you're doing a very good job on that end. Oh, you can always do better. <laughs> but, um, yeah, time of day, childcare, um, how much it costs to get somewhere. Are all massive factors that's you know very that are very easy to take for granted, um, and you know I I feel sometimes I definitely do take that for granted. Um, I normally do free workshops, but at the moment I've got one that's going to be fifty pounds. I didn't realise it was going to be that much. Um, so we tried to talk about strategies for managing that, um, especially as it's going to be a really cool workshop. Um, so yeah, they're really important questions to ask, and I think you can always do better. And Algorave does need to tackle some things around race and class and kind of gender diversity outside of um, the binary. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's not a lot is happening uh, with respect to those things. I mean. We're doing some stuff like trying to reach underrepresented groups, um, but I did a lot of workshops at the 
the National Media Museum, which is in a town called Bradford in the UK, not far from where I'm based in Leeds. And that was really fun, like with seven-year-olds from kind of uh, low socioeconomic um, areas of the city. Um, uh, super fun. Um, but, you know, it's just you kind of get 15 minutes with them and then it's, and I gave loads of schools my email address, but I just don't think they have like the resources or the time or the capacity to uh, push these kind of things any further. Hmm. Sounds like you, do you just apply for a lot of grants? <laughs> um, <laughs> I apply for like odd things myself, but often I get like added into like other people's grants or like ah. have funding to put on an event and and I think, yeah, working in this very like live tech environment um, that's super creative and experimental and fun and silly um, when you're in the right mood. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes you find yourself like a, maybe a more obvious like people, you're like an easy person to invite along. Um, but I think, you know, you know, in the UK where we have much better access to funding for these kind of activities, than you might do in the US, um, just from things I've heard from other people. Sure. Um, well, it also sounds like you're part of a group and I've heard people say things like, you know, 50 activists working alone are not nearly as effective as 50 activists working together. So yeah. if you have if you have a desire to uh, teach people, help people, welcome new faces and that kind of thing it certainly sounds like the benefit of working together can can uh, be quite effective mm -hmm. totally and people like taking on different roles like some people i work with are really awesome at get focusing and organizing things and like uh you know managing uh completion of tasks and I'm much better at like thinking, thinking about things, conceptualizing, coming up with ideas, and the actual like, like uh, leading and performing and working on the teaching and the practical. I like doing things a lot. Um, so yeah, it's finding good people to work with where you can kind of balance out each other's like uh, strengths and weaknesses. And yeah, I mean, I definitely, I'm definitely not like a, a lone actor, and I feel you know, working with other people uh, gives me the energy to, to, to like, uh, continue what I'm doing. Um, but I feel like I could be doing more, but I think it's just because at the moment I'm, I'm, uh, I'm teaching so much that it's, so it becomes like, the noisiest part of my life and the other stuff becomes like okay just chug through this uh, work at the weekend try and bring as much energy as you can and uh see how and see how convincing you can be that you you know <laughs> you got it together um yeah and it's and also just what what i love about um live coding is that it places coding in the social um and, you know, like I mentioned at the start of our talk, for me, it's, you know, who I've met through live coding. And, you know, one thing that really motivates me to keep going and keep, you know, pushing through and doing doing the gigs is all the amazing people that you meet and encounter in the process. Um, and that's, that's, yeah, that's a big privilege. Indeed. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time again to come on the show, Joanne. And is there anything else that you wanted to mention or plug? Or if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, do you want to uh, share any any information like that? Yeah, um, in terms of plugging, there's, uh, there, there's the tour we're doing in Japan. So if you're anywhere around Osaka or Tokyo, it'd be lovely to come and meet. Um, uh, give me a shout um, on email I'm best to for music stuff I normally use midigirl1990 at gmail.com 
Um, I'm at J-O-A-N-N-N-E, that's four N's, uh, Joanne on Twitter. And yeah, they're the best ways to get hold of me. Um, if you're interested in hearing more, um, I'm not very, I'm trying to like plan to be better at having a website and putting a bit more info about what I do, some of the things I make and build and some of my writing. So hopefully when um, I've got a bit of time over Christmas, I'm going to develop that a bit more. I really want to be able to share my uh, workshop materials a bit more freely and openly. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's so much to do when archiving yourself and your work, isn't there? <laughs> um, so much labour involved in that. And it's something that, it's another thing that I'm not very good at um, in terms of, and then there's some people that are really good at it and I probably need to get some strategies off them. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Matthew. Cheers. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hacking Culture. All of the music in this episode is music from Joanne. You can find links to Algo Babes, Awful, Joanne's South by Southwest panel, and more at hackingculture.org slash episode slash 18. Thank you for listening.